This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. As you heard on your news there, the CEO of the Boeing aircraft company, Dennis Muhlenberg, he has stepped down following a year of intense scrutiny and setbacks set off by those two fatal crashes of the company's 737 MAX jetliners. This used to be uh, the workhorse of the Boeing fleet there. Man, they were just churning these jets out a little over a year ago. Then we had those back-to-back fatal crashes of that plane, and it results in one of the biggest crises in the history of the Boeing company, which has been around for about 100 years. So the CEO had been trying to hang on here and steer the company through this crisis and start making these planes again. That has not happened. He has now stepped down as the CEO. Uh, the board of directors uh, deciding on a change of leadership here. After all the problems here, Boeing has lost billions of dollars on this crisis here. So the CEO is out. Here's the hot question of the day. With the issues with this particular aircraft, I know a lot of people would probably say they would never fly in one of these again, even if they the company said they were safe again and they'd fix the problems. I wonder if you would ever fly in a 737 MAX aircraft. So here's the hot question. With all the problems with that particular airplane and the stepping down of the company's CEO, do you do more research now about the type of aircraft that you fly on? Would you say... Yes, I check out the safety record of the planes I get on, safety first, or would you say, no, I mean, that's kind of overreacting. A crash is unlikely, obviously. Here's how you would vote on it today. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question. At CKNW on Twitter. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. Give me a follow while you're there, please. Mike uh, Smith with a Y, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News. Also, give me a call on the buzz line, 604-331-2899. Bring you an update now on a story we've been following for many weeks here at CKNW, and that's more than two months after she was struck by that van and dragged for almost seven blocks in the downtown east side. A young Vancouver woman has been released from hospital and into a rehab center. Her friends and her family are celebrating that. Desiree Evancio, this is an amazing story of her recovery here. She's also started walking. Her family had been told at one point that she might never walk again. So this is wonderful news at Christmas time to hear for all the people who have followed this story and are, and are hoping for her recovery. Let's check in now with her sister, Ashley Dan, who's done a wonderful job taking care of her. Hi, Ashley. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for coming on today. Hey, Nori. Thank you for having me. When did your sister get out of the hospital? Uh, just this past week. She got transferred to uh, our the rehab center. Tell me how she's doing. She's doing really well. I mean, um, the transfer, she so far is enjoying it. There's, I suppose, a lot more freedom. She, there's uh, The facility has a lot of activities there to keep the patients busy and it's just more interactive than being in the hospital right she was she's going into the gf strong facility yeah she's right. there yeah they do wonderful work there that that's that's awesome can, this yeah. is a, a story actually that has touched so many people who have followed it can you tell me a little bit about about your sister and and the injuries that she sustained in this this terrible incident uh yeah she um she is able to walk now. Uh, she still has a brace on her right leg, so her right leg still needs to be straight for a few more weeks. Um, she does have the drop 
foot syndrome. So the muscle that allows you to flex your foot up and down is, is missing. So she has a brace that helps her keep her uh, foot 90 degrees. So it's easier to walk. Um, but uh, at the moment, just both knees are still healing, but she's able to walk. So it's great. Um, her left arm, we're still not sure what's going to happen with that. Originally, the doctor said that they would fuse it. And now they're on the fence of using it. Essentially, they don't want to, but they, they, they're not sure if they can uh, rebuild some of the, the loss that she had there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of still up in the air, but her right arm is doing well. And then, of course, the most trauma that she had was to her face. But right. she's, you know, everything's sealed off right now. It's just sort of a waiting game between surgeries and healing. Right, yeah, a lot of people have heard that she tragically suffered these injuries to her face, to her eye, and her no- her nose, and there have been a lot of, so she underwent, uh, has she been undergone, like, multiple surgeries on that? Yeah, I, so far, I believe she's had six, I'd have to recount, but I think six surgeries on her face, and she wow. still has a handful more. Um, I mean, she's had a lot of loss, so that just takes a lot of time to try and put things back together but yeah her right eye her nose her whole jaw all of her teeth gums all that was lost so um it just takes a while obviously to try and fix is she able to talk yeah she can talk now so she has a trach still in her uh, throat for future surgeries so she has an airway to breathe um, and it was present, preventing her from talk be, talking before, but now uh, they kind of have a plug on it. So it's just there for surgery purposes, not for use. Um, so she's able to talk. How is she doing in her, her spirits and kind of mentally? Um, I mean, like anything, any road, it, there's always ups and downs. But overall, yeah. she's doing really well. I mean, I don't know if I would be in the same position or feel the same way that she does. She's she has a really good spirit towards everything and she's being as positive as she can. So it's really nice to see. That's amazing. What an, what an incredible story. And everyone's praying for her comeback here. And I'm speaking to Ashley Dan. She's the sister of Desiree Avancio, uh, the 25 year old woman who was dragged behind a van and a trailer in the downtown East side as she continues to make her recovery. I, I know when, after the accident, Ashley, I believe, was she in a coma for a while or did she did it take a while for her to wake up? Um, she wasn't in, in a coma, they they had her. They they kind of put her in that state. They were, like she, she was sedated. Feel. Yeah, um, yeah. she had spinal cord uh, spinal injuries, and also because of everything that was going around in her face area, they just didn't really want her to move too much, and so it was just easier to have her sedated for a while. Does so she about, re- sorry? Does she remember any of the accident? No, she doesn't. She doesn't remember the accident or even the first month of being in the hospital. When you're sedated for so long, it just plays with your brain, so you don't have a lot of memory. <laughs> what is her prognosis here? I've, you know, I've read that at first you guys were told that, hey, maybe you should prepare that she might not walk again, but here she is walking, right? So, I mean, you, you guys must be happy with the progress? Oh, yeah. We, we definitely weren't told that she wouldn't walk. We okay. just told that she would have, which she does, um, just having a little bit of, um, trouble walking and you know we don't know if that's something that they can fix down the road but right now it's just she, she just has the, the brace on that makes her a little bit more uh, inflexible but the brace won't be on forever so that would be okay mm-hmm. and as for her her facial injuries can they can they reconstruct that with like prosthetics or how what's the plan there um so her her right eye and her nose will be a prosthetic 
Um, and then her jaw, mouth, teeth area, they'll, I mean, she'll, mo- we're not at that point yet. That's still far away, but I'm assuming that they'd be just dentures and I don't know how they, how, I don't know how they're going to do the rest, but they haven't talked to us about that yet. Right. This has been such an incredible story that has touched so many people. What, what has it been like for, for you and her family and her friends going through this? Uh, it's, well, it's been a very difficult road and it's funny that, you know, she doesn't remember anything and she just wakes up to what's happened while we're, everybody on the outside is, you know, grieving and suffering. Um, but seeing her wake up and being in the positive, you know, as positive state as possible, it really reassures, I suppose, everyone that, you know, it will be hopefully a good, you know, you know, positive at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. Right. Yeah, it's a long road, right? I mean, is she happy to get out of the hospital and into GF Strong? Yeah, very much. Like mm. I was saying, is it's just a different schedule for her, so she's going to be a lot. She's just going to be seeing a lot more doctors, and she has a schedule with which you know to help her um, you, just build muscle and flexibility and everything. So it's good. You've done an amazing job for your sister in in helping her, and uh, I know you're you got your GoFundMe campaign going online. Hope for Desiree is the name of the campaign on go on the GoFundMe site. Mm-hmm. Uh, over two hundred over two hundred fifty thousand raised here so far, which is wonderful. Great job. Um, what do you hope to do with what will be done with that money? Um, nothing's been done so far. I mean, she doesn't need it right now. But um, something that we've talked about is, you know, I know that the surgeons are. We're really lucky. We have the best surgeon working with Desiree at the hospital. But stay down the road if she wants to try and fix anything or make herself feel or look a little bit better. Obviously, that's that's money for her and just living expenses. Once she does get released from the hospital, she won't be going, she won't be working for a while. And the job she has, she had before, there's no benefits. So there's nothing to help her financially other than this really. Um, so it, that's really, we, we don't, that's just kind of what we were discussing so far. Well, I encourage everyone to support that campaign and, and you can, people can still donate online at the GoFundMe now. Uh, yeah, it's still up there. Great. Uh, Ashley, I, I can't imagine what this has been like for your family and your friends here, but it's it's wonderful news here at Christmas time that Desiree is out of the hospital and into GF Strong and into rehab. And so I hope you can pass on her uh, CKNW's best uh, listeners' best wishes to her. All right. I definitely will. Thank you. Okay, Ashley. Thank you for coming on. Okay. Have a good Christmas. Thank you. Same to you. That is Ashley Dan. She is the sister of Desiree Vancio. That's the young woman who was dragged for several blocks behind a trailer christmas coming so fast now a lot of people getting set for christmas dinner with family and friends christmas parties maybe people still got some christmas parties coming up how do you survive a situation where you have to spend christmas with eh, maybe some people you spend the rest of the year avoiding like you know like maybe you got to some cranky relatives or something, or you don't want any kind of incidents at Christmas dinner, topics to avoid in conversation, for example? Well, let's check in with someone who's got some great tips for you. Jeannie Vogel, she is the president of VIP Protocol. She is a protocol and etiquette consultant, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hiya, Jeannie. Hello, how are you? 
I'm great. It must be very interesting being an etiquette and protocol consultant. Who like who are some of your clients? Are you like do you like corporate corporate kind of stuff? Oh, it's it's so varied. Uh, you know, I've got uh, a company that they build drill bits, and they are well, uh, oddly enough. And then there are people that are accountants and bank managers, and then uh, just people that are getting them starting their own business and sort of want to up their game and. Uh, know how to handle the dining room table and the banquets and taking clients to lunch. So it's quite a varied, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a varied uh, lifestyle that I live. Okay. Uh, it's very interesting work for sure. And Christmas time, is that a busy time for you or do people come to you with a lot of sort of protocol and etiquette questions at this time of year? Well, usually in November, I'll, I'll get a little bit more because they're preparing for for the winter uh, or the uh, holiday season party time. Uh, so in November, in December, they're, they're too busy at the parties to get ready for them. They're sort of already there. So, yeah, was- but I do end up getting a lot of uh, questions, you know, when people are involved in these parties and going to relatives' place. They will ask me questions. What do you do about... So it's free advice, but I love giving it. <laughs> okay, what is the... Um, for this year's uh, corporate Christmas parties, do you think things have changed over the years like does your advice change or sort of sensibilities and sensitivities kind of change through time over what's acceptable and what's not at say an office christmas party oh absolutely i mean i don't know what you're comparing it to but you know in the last uh well in the last 10 years there's been enormous changes for example the office christmas party was often a time where you can let loose and party time and uh you know i tell them everybody i see you're always at an interview for for a promotion. So, you know, maybe maybe watch your step. If you want to really party, do it after you leave the party. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, you'll just get your... And Monday morning comes far too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah. There's, you know, there's, now there's a lot. There's, there's a lot of... Uh, it's women and men in, in the same uh, organization. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's still respectful. You're still at work. So, yeah, I think people have to sort of tame it a little bit more than they did maybe 15 years ago. Right. Okay. Well, hopefully everyone got through their Christmas party season safely with their jobs and reputations intact, <laughs> Jeannie. So let's talk about Christmas dinner. Like, okay, when you're gathering with your friends and family, I guess family is, is a big one. Let's say you got a big Christmas dinner and you got some relatives that you have you maybe spend most of the year trying to avoid them, but now you've got to kind of, you know, it's Christmas time. You got to, you can't pick your family, right? You got to be with them. Um, do you have any tips on, you know, how to, everyone can get along? Oh, well, you know, that's a very trying time. Yeah. And I think the best thing you can do is this is only a blink in my day, a blink in my year. You know, it's not like you're asked to go for dinner and have dinner for, with them for 300 days. Uh, know that the, just tell yourself this is three hours and you can do it. The other thing is bring some subject matter topics that will keep you out of trouble or keep everybody else out of trouble. Um, if politics is something that you all agree on, great. Uh, but I, I suggest staying away from all that sort of thing. But bring some thoughts. As I'm going to ask this. I'm going to talk about this. Uh, fake it. Fake it. Put the smile on your face. You know, smile. Put a smile on your face. And again, sometimes we're doing this for our moms, our dads, or our grandparents. You know, it's, it's, Christmas is very often not really about the individual. Um, you know, kill them with kindness. You know, mm. no matter how it hurts, think of a compliment. If they've got a new haircut, say, oh, great, whatever. 
Uh, you may have to <laughs> put a phony smile on your face, but it's better than it's better than just bristling in your chair and wanting it to be over. You know, just think positive and, and have your exit lines ready. So if you get started on something, know what you're going to say to get out of it. So those those are some thoughts. Yeah, okay, so if, let's say you've got an uncle that's got a haircut that looks like it was done with a weed whacker. You just kind of fake it and say, hey, nice haircut. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, I, I mean, mean you know. It, it, and, but you, you really don't want to say it. it, it you got to watch it because if you feel a certain way about the uncle, it may come out sarcastically. So, right. uh, you know, that'll just fan the fires. Okay. You know. The, yeah. poli- the politics. Very often, yeah. I'm sorry. Very often, uh, relatives. Uh, there's so much jealousy and uh, sibling rivalry, and uh, that happens. It's it's underneath. It's under the radar. But very often, people don't like somebody else because really they're insanely jealous of of the person, or maybe they just don't have the same confidence as as you and. And, uh, you know, they exhibit their behaviors that way. So that's why I say killing them with kindness helps. Okay. If anyone out there has got a question about Christmas etiquette and protocol yourself, I mean, here's your chance to talk to an expert. So I'll open the phone lines right now. 604-280-9898. If you want to ask a question about what's the best way to have uh, a problem-free Christmas in terms of getting along with people. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. I liked your idea, Jeannie, or your advice about, you know, avoiding politics unless unless your whole family enjoys talking politics. I mean, when I get together with my family, it's kind of, in, you, uh, you know, it often comes up in conversation. It's not really a problem usually, but sometimes it can be if you got people on sort of opposite sides of a political divide, would you say? Oh, you know, it is such a hot topic right now. And when people go to even parties... In our city, you know, one one I think one of the best uh, ideas to talk about is construction in a city because everybody hates it, and that's that's a that's a leveling playing ground, you know. When you're driving, and then there's construction, and every city uh, experiences that. And if you're if you're a rural person, then you've been in the city enough to know that uh, that it's, it's a pain. Um, so, yeah, think of the things that everybody sort of agrees with and, and, and you'll get out of trouble, <laughs> you know. And, and also, I like to think of, there's a, a past TV show many, many years ago, it's called The Monsters. And they're all, <laughs> you know, Grandpa, Eddie, Lily, whatever. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and so you got to decide, where are you in that group? <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of helps lighten the mood, <laughs> you know, and say, well, this is just my crazy family, and they are just whatever, you know. That that helps, too. <laughs> okay, so if I uh, if I think to myself, well, I'm going to be Eddie Munster, what do I... <laughs> What do I, how does that help me? I just imagine that everyone else is just kind of as wacky as me. <laughs> well, if you recall, I'm not saying that you have to be Marilyn, but she was the most, most normal person. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that's what I do advise my female clients. Is, is just imagine yourself, even at the office, when, when you, you have some, some odd ducks, and you say, just imagine <laughs> that you're the, the ordinary one in this insane group of people. <laughs> So whatever you uh, whatever you uh, associate ordinary in that story, then that's great, you know. Um, okay, how about a you know that's some good advice there for dealing with like a family a family setting. If you're in a, like an office setting and you're to avoid conflict with coworkers or whatever, 
any thoughts there and topics to avoid? Well, you know what? People said, I just avoid that person. Oh. Yeah. Okay, do we still have Jeannie? Oh, hello, Jeannie? Yes. Oh, okay. I just I went, I just didn't hear your voice for a moment. I was got oh. really scared for a second. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you were saying? Uh, well, in uh, some people avoid at all costs. Uh, when they're in the office, they just avoid everybody, but that doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, you can email, 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 but when you have to meet with someone, tell them that this meeting you're going to have is, you know, probably seven minutes long. So right away you're setting up the boundaries, saying, you know what, we've got to get the words out and just get the information exchanged. Uh, and again, don't make it about you. If they're, if they're jerks, <laughs> then say, well, at least I don't have to take this person home with me. You know, just convince yourself. <laughs> I always think about the movie, the show called The Office. Sure. And, yeah. uh, you know, that just kind of lights, lightens that emotional mode. You know, this is, <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's a great uh, example of really kind of the craziness that can go on in an office. But. Well, I, I like your advice about don't make it about yourself because I always find like one great way to just keep a conversation going is you ask, you ask the other person questions, right? You, people, people enjoy having people ask, take a cure, an interest in their, in their lives and careers and what's going on in their lives, right? Instead of talking about yourself all the time. That's a good idea. In fact, yeah. if there's somebody in the office that, you know, you've got a problem with, I suggest on Monday, ask that person what they did on the weekend. Well, yeah, if, they, right. if they went to the lake, then three days later before your meeting, you're going to say, oh, you're going to the lake next weekend. You know, mm-hmm. and then this person starts to like you and they soften, the, they soften their, some of their attitude. Yeah, okay. they like it. Everybody likes attention. All right, Jeannie, some good tips there to help everybody survive and get through the holidays. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot. Well, happy holidays to all your listeners, and just think positive. (laughs) Think positive. Yeah, good advice. Thank you. That's Jeannie Vogue. She is the president of VIP Protocol. This is your hearing on your news there. couple of little earthquakes this morning off of Vancouver Island. There is one reported just about 20 minutes ago that was 185 kilometers west of port alice on vancouver island that one had an automatic detection of about 5.6 on the scale just awaiting official measurement on that one earlier around 8 45 a.m there was another shaker in the same region that one registered 5.1 the important uh, news there is no tsunami expected there no damage that has been reported just a couple little shakers you know just to keep you on your toes and for people out there if you've ever felt an earthquake i felt a couple over the years i remember one when i was working in the press gallery at the bc legislature which is on the third floor of the legislature building felt the building do a little rumble there one day it was a few years ago and I remember one in Victoria also a couple of years ago uh, that sounded like a big bang outside, rattled my window a little bit. You know, we get these things now and then. It's just a little wake-up call that it's out there. So two small quakes on the northern uh, part of off of Vancouver Island this morning that uh, just to update you on, but nothing to worry about. Uh, let's check in with your weather now and your traffic conditions and a busy time of year for people driving and getting to the places where they got to go. Mark Madriga is Global BC's chief meteorologist. Hey, Mark. Is it? So, hi, Mark. Sorry, Mike. I didn't. I didn't push the button. I'm a rookie here. At, uh, how are you, hi, Mike? That's okay. I do that all the time. I did that this you morning. You do not you, Mike? Yeah, not yeah. You. I did it this morning. I was talking to Sterling Fox this morning. I didn't have my microphone on. 
that's not good. Well, there's this good. button that uh, Shintzy, Terry Shintz just left the newsroom, and he turns that button off, and I forgot to turn oh, it on. Oh. I, I was looking up the earthquake stuff you just mentioned. Yeah. And I th- the one you may have been thinking of, I don't know, 2001, uh, which was the, the Seattle quake in February. Oh, yeah. That's the one that shook also Victoria, Vancouver. That may be the one when you were in the press gallery. I'm not sure, but Probably that was, was the big one in 2001, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have All you right, ever so felt one yourself? Uh, I felt that one just barely back in 01. Uh, I was in Osuias Osu- uh, three years ago. I felt one. It was only a four-point something, but yeah, yeah it uh, it scares the living uh, daylight out of you, doesn't it? It does. It is a little freaky. So what's going on with it the sure weather? Is. When I was talking to you last week, we had the snow piling up in the Coquihalla. Yeah. The Coquihalla is open now, though, right? Yeah, it's open. It's uh, I just uh, am showing some webcams on uh, on Twitter and on our uh, our new news. I'm about to do that, and it is a spectacular day up there as far as uh, sunshine on the Coquihalla, Allison Pass, Okanagan Connector. It was a record snowfall late last week and heading into Saturday. Record for a 24-hour period. They got under just a uh, just under sorry a hundred centimeters of snow on the Coquihalla summit. A little more than that over a 48-hour period on. Allison Pass, so that it did break records for uh, for snowfall intensity over a short time. But again, the webcams this morning show the sunshine and just really pleasant pictures. Snow is all on the side of the roads, or pretty much on the side, and uh, very little will fall, if any, between now and the end of the week, Mike, up on those mountain passes. So good-looking travel conditions. I mean, it's not perfect. It's not like the middle of summer uh, right. by any means. There is snow on the side of the road yeah. and maybe a little frosty at nights, but uh, uh, little or no snow will fall between now and Friday in contrast to the record of last week. So one extreme to the other, but good news scenario for travelers. Okay, that's good to hear, Mark. What about Metro Vancouver? How are we looking? Well, again, everybody's still uh, hoping for a white Christmas, or at yeah. least a few of us. Uh, I, you know, I don't get as excited as I used to about that. But uh, here's the plan for Metro Vancouver: uh, the odd uh, rain shower for the rest of the day, fairly cloudy, and then a couple more showers tonight. Now, tomorrow night, of course, Christmas Eve, we will probably get a few more rain showers move in. There's a, an outside chance of a bit of snow mixed in in the higher elevations, uh, some of the higher urban areas of Metro Vancouver. That's tomorrow night, but most rain showers down low especially and uh, into Wednesday Christmas Day will gradually dry might even get a few sunny breaks and Thursday for Boxing Day is a mix of sun and cloud and dry so pretty uneventful weather for the next several days but again it's a it's a good news scenario I think for Christmas Day Boxing Day and that people can get around as there'll be little or no precipitation falling and even a few sunny breaks Mike. Okay so the chances of a white Christmas and sort of lower elevations in Metro Vancouver pretty much zero I'd say. I'd say pretty close to zero, yeah. Okay. Maybe some of the higher elevations, uh, you know, uh, uh, Port Coquitlam, Coquitlam uh, Port Moody, uh, maybe higher north van might pick up a, a mixed rain and snow shower tomorrow okay. night. But sticking snow, yeah, low no. chance there, too. No, that's too bad. All right, let's check in with well, Jeff Jeffries now. <laughs> yeah, so you, don't, you don't want the white Christmas. I kind of like the white Christmas. <laughs> Jeff Jeffries is the AM730 traffic anchor. Hiya, Jeff. Hi, hello there. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. What's and, it like out there? Uh, right now, around the most of the major routes, we're pretty good in a light volume. It's all obviously holiday volume and everybody on vacation right now. We're going to find all the, uh, all the traffic is near all the malls around Metro Vancouver right now. Crazy stuff out there. 
Yeah, right. And for people who are heading out there, Jeff, with uh, with the malls and stuff, what, mm-hmm. you got any tips for people to be ready for, to if they're going out? Well, first things first, you got to be courteous at this time of the year for sure. I mean, maybe if you don't have uh, the right enough time to get into that parking spot, maybe let that car ahead of you get into that one. Just be nice out there yeah, as you make your nice. way. Around. For sure, absolutely. Yeah. That's the main thing. Uh, if you're driving around at night, it obviously gets darker much sooner in the wintertime. Keep those headlights on. You wouldn't believe the calls we get at AM 730 asking us to tell people to keep those headlights on. Do so, please. It's going to keep you safe. Uh, and that means headlights and taillights. You don't want to be invisible out there, that's for sure. And uh, obviously, don't drink and drive. If you're going to go out and take part in any sort of Christmas cheer this year, make sure you plan an alternate ride home, taxi, bus, SkyTrain, if you know the times allow there. And uh, make sure you are well prepared for a safe ride home if you're doing any sort of Christmas cheering. Okay, I think that's some excellent advice there, Jeff, for sure. Yeah, don't try to risk it. It's not worth it. Uh, plan your night out if you are heading out. Uh, Mark, back to you, Mark, with some uh, with weather updates. So this yeah. looks like for the travel. So if people are thinking, well, I'm traveling into the interior the next couple of days, they may have been worried last week with all that snow piling yeah. up and the we got wall up there for a few days, but things looking better now. Yeah, and I've seen this so many times where you get the uh, the extreme weather, you know, day after day of rain down low and snow in the mountains, and then bang, you go into an extended dry period, and that's what we have. And that's, uh, again, great timing for those traveling this week on those mountain passes, Mike. And don't don't get carried away, though. I mean, don't go 120, 130 on those, uh, on those highways like the, the uh, Coquihalla and the Connector because, you know, it can still be somewhat slick. There is snow on the side of the road. And uh, again, it's all piled up mostly on the side of the roads, but very little will fall for the next few days. So yes, it's uh, the timing is is pretty darn good for for this week for a lot of travelers. What was that thing that we talked about last week? What did you call it? Atmospheric river? Is that what it was oh, called? Yeah, the atmosphere. Yeah. What was that again? Well, there's the pineapple. There's sorry. There's the pineapple express, which is you know fairly similar idea here. The atmospheric river. Well, a river, of course, carving its way geographically down low. Well, this is the atmospheric river. That's this stream of extreme moisture that uh, that kicked in last week and um, again it was accompanied by uh, fairly mild air down low but it did fall as that heavy snow course on the mountain passes but the angle of that uh, that flow was just right in just the exact position that that would uh, create optimum uh, heavy snow for the Coquihalla even Allison Pass which often gets less snow than the Coquihalla got even more in this scenario because the main stream was closer to the border so yeah that was last week and that's that's uh, that's all done. Now we're in a kind of a well, let's call it a boring weather pattern. Not much going on the next <laughs> few days. The odd shower and and uh, a little sun and mostly dry. Right, I like then. boring sometimes, though. Yeah, it can be okay, especially if you got to be on the road. That's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Mark. Thank you for that. Well, yeah, you have a Merry Christmas, Mike. Maybe talk to you before the New Year. You never know. If we get another atmospheric river, I'll uh, okay. you'll be the first to know. Okay. I'll give you a call at home. Right. Thank you, Mark, and Merry Christmas to you. And Jeff, Jeff Jeffries, AM730 Traffic Anchor. Jeff, thanks for coming on. Hey, no problem. Happy holidays, guys. Same to you, Jeff. That's Mark Madriga, Global BC's Chief Meteorologist. Jeff Jeffries, AM730 Traffic Anchor. Some good news there on your weather and your traffic conditions. Let's talk about this situation at ICBC now. And this story with uh, RCMP Constable Sarah Beckett, who was that police officer who was uh, killed by a drunk driver, uh, she laid down her lives uh, protecting the rest of us. People will remember that she was the first female police officer to die in the line of duty in British Columbia. 
the first police officer on Vancouver Island killed since 1991. This has deeply affected the entire community. And then to hear this story that ICBC, in some court documents, were actually blaming her for the collision that took her life is just infuriating to me. I just can't believe it. Here she is, a 32-year-old mother of, of two little boys killed on duty. Uh, the guy who hit her had three and a half times the legal limit of alcohol in his blood when he slammed into her. He was sentenced to four years in jail for dangerous driving causing death. I mean, you could you could probably do another show on whether that was an adequate punishment. Four years in jail for, for uh, killing this police officer in a drunk driving incident. But then for ICBC in court documents to say that she was somehow to blame. I, I just find that extraordinary. ICBC uh, saying in court documents that she failed to keep a proper lookout. She failed to see this drunk driver's truck at a reasonable time. Failed to drive her own car in a careful and prudent manner. Are you kidding me? This woman has lost her life, laid down her own life for us? Unreal. ICBC is now apologizing for saying in court documents that this uh, this police officer was to blame for her own death. Here's Nicholas Jimenez, the president of ICBC. We've taken steps to reach out and apologize to uh, the family of Consul Beckett, to the RCMP, um, to the people uh, in, the, in the community, the broader community. And, and I think this is the most important part. We're, we're taking steps to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Okay, Nicholas Jimenez, the president of ICBC, they're saying that the ICBC apologizes for blaming this uh, this police officer for, for this crash. Let's check in with Jazz Johal now. He's the BC Liberal MLA and critic for ICBC. Jazz, thanks for taking the time. Pleasure, Michael. Your thoughts on this uh, story? Well, you know, I was I was listening to you uh, in your preamble there, and I could certainly sense uh, your frustration and your anger. And I think your listeners, the people across British Columbia, and certainly me as well, were just gobsmacked uh, last week when we heard this story initially when it came out. I think how could a corporation uh, be so insensitive? Uh, and it was quite shocking. I remember it was quite late afternoon when I first saw the story come across the wire, and I was just shocked. And while I'm glad the ICBC apologized, you do have to ask yourself, what's going on behind the scenes here? Is this a systemic problem? And the reason I say that is it's not like this just happened last week. This was initially filed, or this defense was filed by ICBC last year, specifically last spring. So that was 18 months ago. In yeah. those 18 months, there would have to be lawyers going over that defense. There would have to be legal assistants looking at that defense. There would probably have to be managers, senior managers, looking at that defense. And not one person flagged this in those 18 months? Yeah. That's what I find shocking and galling. It's not as, as if corporations don't make mistakes. I understand that. But when this particular file has been sitting there on the desk of various senior people and their legal counsel and legal assistants, and you're telling me nobody flagged this? Nobody saw this coming? And that's what shocks me, that here we are 18 months later, somebody in the media points this out, and then ICBC starts backtracking and then it offers an apology. 
So if this is happening with the claim of uh, Ms. Beckett and putting her family through this, what's happening with other uh, British Columbians who also have been injured uh, and are going through the system right now? Is this representative and reflective of ICBC uh, playing tough with British Columbia shareholders and ICBC ratepayers as well? That's my biggest concern in this. Yes, it was insensitive. Yes, ICBC apologized. But like I said, 18 months this went on and nobody noticed. What are they doing with those who also have claims with ICBC today and now? Right. The the claim in this particular case that triggered this debacle here for ICBC was the Attorney General of Canada. So basically the federal government and effectively, which runs the RCMP, they were seeking to be compensated for the loss and damage to her vehicle. So to her police car. So that's how this happened. So they were effectively looking for money from ICBC to compensate for the damage and loss of this police car that was wrecked by this drunk driver. And that's how ICBC ended up filing uh, these pleadings saying, oh, no, no, it was actually her fault. That's how this happened. And uh, do you think that is an indication of like a, a corporate culture over there at ICBC that when they're in a situation they're adjudicating and fighting over an accident and liability, that they will go to the wall and fight you to the wall every every step of the way, even to the extreme of a police officer who's been killed by a drunk driver. I mean, maybe that's why people get lawyered up when they're fighting well, ICBC, right? You, you raise a very good point here, Michael. Um, you know, you in I, within the, the, the corporation, you have represented files and unrepresented files in ICBC. So those people that are working through the system to find compensation, and those that say, look, I'm fed up with this, I'm going to lawyer up. You had yeah. about 60,000 files like this in 2017 at ICBC. I was just checking that this morning. We're at 90,000 files. So in other words, yeah. from 2017 to 2019, the current inventory of injury files has increased by 30%. People have lawyered up. Yeah. And potentially it could be the, 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 the culture there at ICBC. I'd also argue it's the way the NDP have handled the files as well and turned it, to, you know, turned it into a political hot potato. But we have a 30% increase, a 30% increase of people, uh, what they call uh, lawyering up for their injury files since right. 2017 alone. So something is wrong over that, uh, there at ICBC. There's been a significant increase from 60,000 files where lawyers are representing people to 90,000 files in a mere two years. So this is, uh, in this case with the Beckett's, like I said, they've got, they apologized. But yeah. when you ever see a significant increase of people hiring lawyers, there's got to be something inside, or at the very least, in my opinion, it's also the way the NDP have handled this file as well. Okay, I think it uh, reinforces the importance of this ICBC file politically here, and I think we'll be talking more about it in 2020. Jazz, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure, pleasure, Michael. Merry okay, Christmas. that is same to you. That is Jazz Johal, Liberal MLA. He is the Liberal critic for ICBC. By the way, the RCMP after they discovered that. ICBC was trying to blame this officer who lost her life, trying to blame her for this uh, crash by a drunk driver that killed her. They put out a statement saying that, quote, the timing of this story coming out so close to Christmas leaves the membership of the West Shore RCMP saddened, unquote, which I think is maybe a diplomatic way of saying how shocked the RCMP were that that ICBC did this. The ICBC has apologized, but I'll tell you, 
That's a debacle. That's a black eye for ICBC. Let's bring you an update on those uh, earthquakes that have been felt off the BC coast this morning. I just stress again, no tsunami here and no damage reported. But the interesting thing here is just a series of them off the northern tip of Vancouver Island. The first one this morning measuring 5.2. Then the second one measuring 5.6. And the latest one provisionally measuring 5.8. So that just happened a few minutes ago off the coast of Port Hardy on the northern tip of Vancouver Island. Again, important to stress, no tsunami expected, no reports of damage. Uh, this The quakes are largely not felt on the island, but... Three in a row like that? Is that unusual? Is that strange? Is that something to worry about? Let's check in with Mika McKinnon now, geophysicist and a disaster researcher based in North Vancouver. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Mika. Hello. Good to talk to you. Thanks again for coming on. So three in a row here off the northern tip of Vancouver Island. Is that like, I start wondering, like, is that building up to something bigger or do earthquakes work like that? So earthquakes, you can kind of think about being like a pile of puppies. And when one of them (laughs) shifts and smacks the other, they shuffle and move around. And most of the time, they just kind of settle back down. But every now and then, one puppy smacks another on the nose, and they all erupt into chaos. So we never really know with earthquakes. We know that the stress is redistributing, but we can't actually tell whether or not it's going to turn into something larger or not. So right now, this is looking just kind of like the plates are a little bit restless. Everything's shuffling around a little bit. Uh, there are a cluster of them right next to each other. So to me, that looks like the stress from one fault moved, and that locked end just kind of overtipped the next one over, and it reshuffled, and everything's kind of redistributing and getting, getting resettled. But we won't really know if there's going to be something bigger or not until some time passes. So then either something happened or it didn't. Right. Okay. So when you get a sort of a cluster of them like that, of a series of smaller ones, 5.2, 5.6, 5.8, it is safe to say they're, they're probably related to each other? These ones are definitely, they're right on top of each other and they're right about the same depth. They're all about 10 kilometers depth. And if looking at, so the entire surface of the earth is a bunch of tectonic plates. And we usually think about we're, we're on the North America plate and then there's the Pacific plate coming crashing towards us. But in between the two, right off the coast of Vancouver Island, is the Juan de Fuca Plate. And these are all happening right in the north tip of the Juan de Fuca Plate. And it's probably some sort of interaction happening there um, of, of fairly deep down. So maybe the plate is caught up a little bit and it's buckling and grinding a little bit. Everything is moving about the same rate your fingernails grow. So we do expect to have, we have about 5,000 earthquakes a year in Canada we don't feel most of them. We only feel about one a week, about 50 of them. Um, so, yeah, it's happening, but it's it's frequently happening. Okay, so nothing to worry about then. <laughs> like, this is not a sign that, oh, my God, like, the big one is imminent or anything like that. Well, hopefully not. But, I mean, we do live in a, an active tectonic zone. We do, do expect to have earthquakes. Yes. Uh, this particular area has had, it had a magnitude six and a half last year. Um, It's had a couple of sixes and sevens over the last century. Uh, But thankfully, it's underneath the ocean and fairly far offshore, so nobody is feeling anything. And there's side-to-side motion on this particular set, so they're not generating tsunami, which is great. But I always see it anytime we've got this sort of activity, it's a good reminder of, are you ready for earthquakes? 
Um, do you have a pair of shoes under the edge of your bed? Are your bookcases attached to your wall? Um, my favorite bit, particularly this time of year, do you know your neighbors? If things go really wrong, they're your first responders. Do you know who they are and can you like help them with their kids or they, can they help you find your pet? Just you know, invite them over, get to know them. That's some disaster preparedness. Okay, so it's a good excuse for a throw a Christmas party maybe then. Exactly. Happy holidays. We live in a seismic zone. There's some earthquakes going on. Let's all live. Okay. Okay. Uh, we just got about a minute left here or so, Mika. So when you talked about are you, are you prepared, every time one of these happens, I think a lot of us, it goes through our mind, okay, I better make sure I have a kit. I've got a plan. Maybe I update that kit. What are some of the, the critical elements that you should have in that plan and your earthquake kit? Anything is better than nothing. I see a lot of people who panic and freeze and go, well, I don't have the time or the money to get everything done. When we survey people about their preparedness, the biggest hindrances are I'm broke, I'm lazy, and I have no space. So doing anything is better than nothing. Even if you just think about things, that's a little bit more preparedness. Uh, Ideally, you want to be able to take care of yourself for up to three days. Uh, right. Because it might take us some time to get all of our response in gear. Do you have some food you can prepare without any electricity? Right. Do you have water on hand? Okay. But to me, it's, do you have shoes under the edge of the bed? So if there's an earthquake and everything falls over, you're not going to slice your feet up trying to get anywhere. Mm. Do you know your neighbors so you can help each other out? All right. Mika, thank you for that. Absolutely. Have a fantastic holiday. Thank you, Mika. Same to you. That's Mika McKinnon. She's a geophysicist and disaster researcher in North Van. As we continue having lots of Christmas fun on our Christmas Eve Eve show. And right now, let's talk a little Christmas movies and everything that's hot in the theaters right now and also on demand and streaming online as well. My guest is Steve Stebbing, movie connoisseur and critic, stevestebbing.ca on Twitter the Steve-O Dead, still an awesome Twitter handle. Uh, Thank Steve, you. Steve, thanks for coming on. All right, thanks for having me. Okay, Steve, let's start with the movie that everyone's talking about. It's getting all the Oscar buzz and everybody loves it, and it's Cats, of course. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Thank God. You, did you see? You didn't see Cats, or did you? No, apparently oh. they got to still finish it anyway, so. <laughs> Okay, maybe that one will go down as one of those movies that's so bad it's good and ends up with a cult following. I don't know. I I, I don't know. Just to think that Tom Hooper started the decade off with King's Speech and he ended it with Cats. cats. I think it showed that that speaks volumes. <laughs> okay, all right. The one that uh, I know it came out last weekend and it's not opening this weekend, Steve. But I just want to get your take on it. And I'm talking about uh, Star Wars. I mean, I enjoyed it. Uh, I like it more than Force Awakens, but I didn't like it as much as I like Last Jedi. I know that uh, that that's a decisive one where people go 50-50, but you know what? I thought that Ryan Johnson took so many chances with Last Jedi, and I think they pan out. I think it, it's it's gorgeous looking, and I think in comparison, Rise of Skywalker's cinematography, I think is a little bit bland. I think that J.J. Abrams also wanted to make a sequel to his own film rather than the previous one in the in the, the series, and I think that hurts the movie a little bit. Um, I, I like I said, I, I did enjoy it. I just think it suffers from a little lack of imagination. Okay, um, do you think there's any signs of like franchise fatigue out there for Star Wars? Are people only getting a little sick of it? 
I don't think it's franchise fatigue. I think that Kathleen Kennedy, Lucasfilm, and J.J. Abrams wanted to pander a little too much to their fan base because of the decisive thoughts on Last Jedi. And I thought there's just a lot of fan servicing and and just things that kind of felt slightly unnecessary and more like like just trying to make those fanboys happy. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm one of the fanboys. Haven't seen it yet, though, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Let's uh, talk about some of the other movies in theaters right now, Steve. Jumanji, The Next Level. Are we in Florida? Oh, my God. Wait. We're in the wrong body! My joints feel like butter. Oh, no. I feel loose myself. Okay, I really like the original Jumanji film, mm-hmm. and this is like, what, the second reboot, right? Yeah, well, this the second film from the reboot, which came out a few years ago, uh, Welcome to the Jungle. Uh, and, uh, I mean, they changed into a video game this time where, where the characters are put into the bodies uh, of these video game characters, which are uh, played by The Rock, Kevin Hart, Jack Black, and Karen Gillan. And uh, where, while the first, the, the first one kind of establishes everything, this one puts it in a whole new direction because two of the, the people inhabiting, like The Rock and Kevin Hart, is Danny DeVito and Danny Glover. And The Rock plays it so beautifully. So does Kevin Hart. Uh, I, I think it really shows how great of comedy chops that, that The Rock has, how much he's able to make fun of himself. And honestly, I think the next level is a better movie than Welcome to the Jungle. Okay, I like The Rock, too, so I'm going to put that one on my list. Also in theaters, Knives Out. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to gently request that you all stay in town until the investigation is completed. Yeah, well, he's gently requesting, but I'm going to have to make that in order. No one move until we figure this all out. What? Can we ask why? Has something changed? No. No, it hasn't changed, or no, we can't ask? Mr. Stevens, uh, you may continue. Okay, this one stars... Uh, Daniel Craig, also known as James Bond 007. What do you think of this one, Steve? I love this movie. This movie is so well written, so well put together. Uh, If you like movies like Murder by Death or Clue, this movie will play right into your alley. And this comes from the guy that did Last Jedi, Ryan Johnson, proving that, heck, he's a really great filmmaker. So everyone that was burying him over Last Jedi, you're kind of in the wrong. Okay, looks that one looks pretty good to me too. Let's talk about some of the movies out there that are on demand. You can watch at home. Ad Astra with Brad Pitt. Major, what can you tell us about the Lima Project? First manned expedition to the outer solar system, sir. Some twenty-nine years ago. And the commander was. It was my father, sir. The ship disappeared approximately sixteen years into the mission. No data was ever recovered. Deep space missions were halted after that. Roy, we have something that might come as quite a shock to you. We believe your father is still alive near Neptune. My father's alive, sir? We believe so. You know, love the trailer, uh, mm-hmm. and certainly a well-received movie, a movie critically, too. What did you think of it, Steve? 
I love this movie. I have added it to my favorite sci-fis of all time. It is such a well-put-together movie. And what really upset me is, yeah, this movie came out in September, one of the only big releases that month, and then subsequently got forgotten, it feels like. Like, nobody talks about this movie anymore, uh, which is just incredible in world-building. It's such a beautiful character story. I mean, Brad Pitt's character is uh, you know a multifaceted guy with drive like he's driven to his to his job he's driven to the mission but at the same time he's driven to get the answers that that kind of he doesn't have since his father abandoned him essentially and so he's searching uh, to the deepest reaches of space for these answers Okay, Brad Pitt, of course, a real A-list actor for sure, and one of my favorites. I'm sure a lot of people love, love his movies. Uh, going into outer space, you think that's a good career move for any A-list actor out there? Hey, all the A-listers did it. Clooney yeah. did it. Sandra Bullock did it. I mean, yeah, this is this is what they do. Okay, one one of the best sci-fi movies of all time. That's saying a lot, Steve. Where, so where yeah. would this rank up the list there? What would you, what would be near the top of your list of other the best sci-fis of all time? Uh, I mean, 2001, Space Odyssey is in there. Uh, I, I, I mean, uh, Blade Runner is in there. Yeah, sure. Uh, like, I, I, you know, and I, I said this a couple of years ago, but I would even hold Blade Runner 2049 a bit higher than the original as well on that list. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I thought I thought the remake of Blade Runner was pretty good too. All right. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Brad Pitt, it's been a big year for him, including uh, the Quentin Tarantino movie, now on demand. Once upon a time in Hollywood. What do you think is so funny? What I think is... You're a little man with a big mouth and a big chip. And I think you should be embarrassed to suggest you be anything more than a stain on the seat of Cassius Clay's trunks. Father, you're the one with the big mouth. And I would really enjoy closing it, especially in front of all my friends. But my hands are registered as lethal weapons. That means we get into a fight, I accidentally kill you, I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. <laughs> okay. That was a great scene in the movie with the guy uh, playing Bruce Lee there, right? Yeah, Michael yeah. Moe played yeah. on that. Yeah. That was a great scene. Yeah. I mean, this movie, it, I mean, Tarantino basically makes a love letter to the reason why he's a filmmaker. Uh, that that era of the uh, you know just kind of film and and, uh, and and just kind of an interesting look at a burnt out actor trying to revive his career, his stuntman uh, that's kind of like his cohort and kind of best friend, uh, and this movie just is so well put together. There is a there is a scene in the middle of the movie where they go to the Manson compound, and I've never seen um, Tarantino deliver a scene that felt. Uh, Ten, uh, like like the real tension with uh, without feeling pulpy, and this movie this movie has a totally intense scene in it. Yeah, one of the things I enjoyed it too, and one of the things I loved about the movie too was the the recreation of like nineteen sixties Hollywood, which was just mm-hmm. done down to the you know the smallest detail and just everything in it from the music, the cars, oh, the yeah. fashion, the look at the street, the looks on the streets, just everything just seemed very accurate, and it was really cool. I thought. Yeah, there's a there's a sequence with Brad Pitt just going for a rip as fast as he yeah, can yeah. down like Sunset Boulevard, and it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, no, I enjoyed it too. That's on demand right now. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Okay, all right, Steve, just a couple more on uh, 
movies that are out on streaming that you recommend. Dolomite is my name with Eddie Murphy. You know, there's there's plenty of story opportunity, Rudy. Across this nation, inner cities are being plagued by violent crime. I I feel the government hasn't stepped up. That's it. It's Whitey's fault. The mayor's corrupt, and there's an exorcism. God damn it, an exorcism. Yeah, you know all that. Um, I don't know how that fits into our urban uh, motif. Okay, now streaming on Netflix. Steve, what do you think? I saw this uh, before the uh, at the Vancouver International Film Festival this year and fell in love with it. It is such a well-put-together film. Uh, Eddie Murphy plays uh, Rudy Ray Moore, who invents this larger-than-life uh, pimp character in the 1970s who became a cult smash of both on record and on film. Uh, this is Eddie's comeback, and if anyone saw Saturday Night Live this past weekend, he's so ready to, to be back in the spotlight and I, I'm so happy that this movie is awesome and I think everyone should see it especially since he's nominated for a Golden Globe next month okay definitely available I'm going to check it out on Netflix also on Netflix I think just about everybody's seen this one now The Irishman I never waited for anyone who was late more than 10 minutes in my life I'd say 15 15 right no 10 I don't think so Ten's not enough. You have to take traffic into account. That's that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm taking traffic into account. That's why it's ten. I still say fifteen. No, ten. Fine, we, we disagree on that. Well, how oh. about twelve and a half minutes? There we go. Hey, twelve and a half. Middle, right it's in the middle. Compromise. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, more than ten is saying something. Is saying something to me? No, I'm here. Hmm. It says what it says. Okay. You know, when uh, when I first sat down to watch this, Steve, I thought, boy, three and a half hours? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll watch half of it now and half of it later. You know, I was I watched the whole thing in one sitting because I thought it was great. Yeah, this movie is so well done. Scorsese is just a, a guy that's always uh, delivering uh, great cinema. I, I mean, and this one kind of goes back to the well that made him, really, uh, with three of the guys that really pushed his career, which would be uh, Al Pacino, D- uh, Robert De Niro, and Joe Pesci. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, some of those guys have built, been in a lull point in their careers. Uh, and, honestly, Pesci, uh, sorry, uh, Pacino hasn't been better in this movie than he, like, he's been really bad for, for almost two decades now. So <laughs> to see this one, you're like, oh, he's still got it. Okay, we've got a couple of minutes left. Let's do your top three Christmas movies, Steve. And um, let's start with your number three. Now, this one kind of threw me a little bit, but you put Black (laughs) Christmas number three on your list. Isn't that, this is a new movie, isn't it? No, the, the the new one is a remake. Oh, it's a uh, the, remake. The one, okay. Yeah, the one I'm speaking about, it comes from 1974. It's a Canadian film uh, made by Bob Clark, which is another name that will factor into my uh, top three here. But this one, I mean, it's uh, Olivia Hussey, uh, Margot Kidder's in this one, Cure Dulia from uh, 2001, and Andrea Martin. And it's basically about a sorority house that gets attacked by a killer inside the house at Christmas time. Okay, so it's kind of a horror Christmas movie? It is. It is definitely a horror Christmas, but it's got one of the best uh, open endings in any horror film, and definitely any Christmas film, I'll say. Okay, number two on your list is A Christmas Story. Of course, the saga of Ralphie and his Red Ryder BB gun. Uh, What do you like about that one? 
Uh, this one's just a classic movie. Uh, of course, uh, Peter Billingsley, little chubby Peter Billingsley playing Ralphie, does it so well. He's such an expressive little kid. And again, this movie comes from Canadian director Bob Clark as well. Wow. And I just, I think it's just very indicative of Canadian winters as well, even though it's supposed to take place in America. But yeah, I, yeah. I love Christmas Story and it's a staple this time of year. Okay, give me your number one. Die Hard. Oh, I love it. There we go. And people <laughs> like to contest this one all the time, saying it's not a Christmas movie. It could take place any time of the year. They are wrong, Mike, because <laughs> if there wasn't a Christmas party at Nakatomi Plaza, right. uh, John McClane wouldn't be going to see Holly Gennaro. He wouldn't. <laughs> well, and her name is Holly Gennaro. Yeah. I mean, that's just yeah. one of many reasons it's a Christmas movie, right? Yeah, I don't know why people contest this. I don't yeah. know. No, I mean, I love it, too. And whenever our family gets together for uh, to watch a Christmas movie, I always put my hand up for Die Hard, and everyone kind of <laughs>, laughs at me. But I I often get my way, and everyone has a good time watching it. So, I love Yeah, it. I, me too. Me too. I, I, I quote it too much. That's my only problem. <laughs> where, uh, Steve, where can people find your stuff online? Yeah, you can find me at the Steeble, uh, Steeble Dead, uh, sorry, Steeble Dead online on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And then you can find my website, stevestebbing.ca. Steve, Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for coming on. Merry Christmas, Mike. All right, that's Steve Stebbing with his take on Christmas movies. I would do my top three. I would go White Christmas by Der Bingle, Bing Crosby, which I watched again last night. It's always a good laugh. Home Alone. Macaulay Culkin, I think, was just great. And I'm going to go, I'm going to agree with Steve. I'll go with Die Hard. Do you disagree or agree with me? Phone me on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. Let's take a look back now at a big story in our province this year, money laundering. This is the year we saw more revelations about the scale and scope of criminal money laundering in our province, how it's distorting the economy. There was big pressure on Premier John Horgan's NDP government at the start of the year, to call a public inquiry into money laundering. He did just that in May. The public inquiry is coming in the new year, so you can bet 2020 will also be a big year on this file. But let's take a look back now at 2019. Got the best guest on the topic, Sam Cooper, investigative reporter for Global News. He broke a lot of the big stories on this in 2019. Sam, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, Sam, let's go back to the start of the year now. And one of the things that really sounded the alarm bells on this file was the collapse of the biggest money laundering prosecution being pushed by the RCMP and the Crown. And that was the e-pirate investigation into underground banking and links to casinos in BC. That all unraveled in late 2018. But at the start, near the start of 2019, you were able to find out some of the details about how that case fell apart. And I, I think this really started the pressure on the government to call the public inquiry. So tell me about that, the e-pirate investigation, first of all. Yeah, uh, Mike, you're absolutely right about that. First of all, e-pirate is really what um, exposed what a lot of people on the inside knew and what people really in BC were suspecting that something very, very bad was happening in casinos and in uh, really real estate. But in, in a nutshell, what it was is uh, there were huge connections between Chinese gangs based in mainland China and cash coming into BC casinos, mountains of cash in uh, suitcases, in hockey bags, 
and uh, it appeared that casinos were just letting this come in. So ePirate is believed to be the biggest casino money laundering, money laundering investigation in Canadian history. And uh, our reports, even this is going back to the Vancouver Sun, showed the depth of this, showed it graphically. People were, a lot of people were, were waiting for charges where, you know, this was the hope that we're going to end this horrible problem. And then the case falls apart. And yes, uh, I revealed the reasons. It was simply that uh, Crown, the, uh, the federal prosecutors and the RCMP blew it. It was a huge case with literally gigabytes of data, incredible uh, amounts of evidence. And they ended up uh, flipping, uh, as the police would say, <laughs> unintentionally the, the, uh, the identity of a confidential informant. They gave this to the defense side and they claimed that we have to throw this case away because we could be endangering someone's life. So when that happened, uh, you're right, Premier Horgan, uh, Attorney General Eby came out and they said this is incredibly disappointing. Really, I mean, the rule of law is in danger. How can we move forward if the RCMP and uh, the prosecutors can't do their job? I remember David Eby very early on in his tenure saying that when the public gets a glimpse and an idea of the scale of this money laundering, it was going to blow people's minds. And there was a famous news conference where Eby showed some of those famous videos of the bags of money and cash and gangster rolls of loot being brought into BC casinos. And it did blow people's minds. It just looked so dirty. And then to have this big case, I mean, this was the one, right? This e-pirate case, this was the one where everyone was pinning their hopes on saying, finally, maybe we're going to get some of these, some of these bad guys. And then the whole thing unravels. And EB was disappointed by that. Do you think that that increased the pressure on the government here for this public inquiry? Absolutely. I, I even heard from inside the government, they, like the public, had their hopes on this. I mean, there was finally going to be accountability with these high-level gangsters, and they're very high-level, Mike, uh, you know, they were going to be put in jail, hopefully. They were going to, we were going to have this public record that says, you can no longer launder your fentanyl money in this province the way you've been doing it, and it fell apart. So I was hearing from inside government, if the, if the police can't handle this, yes, maybe we do need to call an inquiry. It may even be uncomfortable for, for, uh, for our government. It'll be more uncomfortable for the previous government. But we have to take this out of our hands and, and let uh, independent people look at it. And I really believe you're right. That started rolling the ball on the inquiry. Okay. I know there were people in the government that were still resistant to a public inquiry, but there was also another story this year, Sam, about Muriel Labine. Tell me that story and how you think that that may have even increased the pressure even more for this public inquiry. It it certainly did, because one of the things that I was um, uh, fascinated or really motivated in my investigation is this didn't happen by accident in, in British Columbia. You know, in a couple of years, there was a long history of what I'm calling and what is Macau-style underground money laundering, Macau casino money laundering, that's been going on for decades in that uh, Chinese-related jurisdiction and was imported to British Columbia in the late 80s, the early 90s, and it really took off in the late 90s. What this story of Muriel Labine uh, proved was that um, this woman, a brave, uh, as she calls herself, a grandmother from the suburbs who was working in a Richmond casino, started to notice in May 97, when the NDP raised betting limits 
from $25 to $500 overnight and put in Baccarat tables, right away she started seeing foreign, uh, she could only judge them to be Asian gangsters coming in with bags of cash. She started to investigate herself and she found these were the big circle boys, a mainland China and Hong Kong based gang. And she started making reports to her managers. She says she was not interested. So in a nutshell, we broke the story of her casino diaries. This is a woman who was an investigator, who was an insider, who happened to be uh, an employee inside the casino. No one was taking her seriously. And so there was a lot of data there, a lot of evidence. And uh, we just put it out there and it said, hey, this is not just a BC Liberal government issue. The NDP opened the door to this money laundering. So I felt it was important to timeline it. That's just one major point of uh, uh, circumstances that, that has led to our modern problems. But we were hearing that when we broke that story, people inside the NDP were saying, we, can't, uh, we have to take some responsibility and we need to put ourselves at arm's length. I do, yeah. you know, they were saying in their words, we need an inquiry. We've got to step out of the way. Right. I think this is one of the key things that really cranked up the pressure, too, are these whistleblowers, because Muriel Labine was just one of them, a dealer supervisor, just someone working in a casino who saw stuff and, and felt it was important to speak up. And do you think these whistleblowers, you've interviewed a lot of them, you've gotten to know them. Are they going to be key witnesses in a, in a public inquiry? In, in the new year, like a guy like Fred Pinnock, who was used to be the head of the Integrated Illegal Gambling Enforcement Team. This is a guy who went public and blasted the former government for not doing enough on criminal activity in casinos. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. They will be, uh, they will be the, the most important witnesses to get to the bottom of, of what happened here and whether there was corruption at high levels in government to turn a blind eye to dirty cash that any reasonable person knew this was going on. So there's a couple of points here. I just want to say that something strikes me with the whistleblowers almost to a person. You see that in their own personal life, in their profession, they have taken a hit. You know, they, they saw things going on where they couldn't stand it anymore. They asked, uh, you know, for either the police, the RCMP, BC's government to step in and take action, and it didn't happen. So what happens? They lose their jobs. Yep. They, they may go on stress leave. They may have, you know, all kinds of issues to their family just because they were trying to tell the truth. That takes us to, to the next point. Will they be able to tell their truth at the inquiry? Well, I can tell you that they want to name names, and they're shocking. They're shocking names. They're, uh, I'll leave it at that. But they feel, are they exposed to the backlash that's going to come at them from people that have got what is called standing, meaning their lawyers are going to be paid for in the, in the inquiry. These could be uh, executives in the Lottery Corporation. You know, this could be the BC Law Society. This could be real estate associations. So we're talking about the most rich and powerful uh, people in the province that may have benefited from this scandal. And we have whistleblowers on the other side that are worried if they can pay their legal bills. Because, um, Mike, uh, I'll tell you, I can tell you for sure this is what can ha this will happen. People will be discredited or, you know, tried to be pulled through the mud and said, oh, you're making allegations. What, where were you? You know, and it, they, they are worried. I can tell you that. Okay. You mentioned earlier, Sam, about how the betting limits in the casinos got cranked up dramatically in British Columbia, and maybe that was part of the genesis of this money laundering problem in the casinos. I remember those days when it was just 25 bucks was the maximum bet and like a hand of blackjack. 
and then it got cranked up under the NDP government. And then when the liberals came in, didn't they crank the betting limit up even higher? Absolutely. So we've talked about that very key event, $25 to $500 and Baccarat tables in 97. That's right. important because the Baccarat tables are the favored uh, Macau money laundering game. And it's also the favored big bulk cash uh, way to get the, you know, drug money into casinos. Let's just tell it like it is. I know that people uh, in the casino industry don't want me to say that. The evidence is that. But absolutely, BC's government realized we have a cash cow here and it is bringing in foreign gamblers, flying them into BC and uh, letting them gamble in our casinos. And if we increase those bet limits, the government is, of course, bringing in more and more revenue. So those bet limits go from 500 to 5,000, 10,000, up and up, finally to 100,000. So, yes, I, I broke a story in spring this year. And what it said was BC's government was told by the casino regular, regulator, GPEB, no, we don't want you to raise limits to 100,000 at Baccarat because that's a money laundering danger. What did they do? The opposite. Someone at a very high level, maybe the minister level, stepped in because BC Lottery Corp wanted those limits raised to 100K. They were raised. And in 2014, what happens? Money laundering blew through the roof that year. And uh, my story showed that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I first heard about that $100,000 betting limit, at Baccarat, I thought, are you kidding me? Like a lot of people would look at that and say, is this a misprint? No, $100,000 betting limit in BC casinos. I mean, back in the old days when the betting limits were real small, I mean, it was just like, this is a, a small problem. Man, once you put, cranked up the betting limits like that, it was like a tsunami of cash just flooding into these casinos over a few years. And there were people who saw problems and tried to blow the whistle. And I guess they're going to get their chance in the new year. Just looking forward a little bit now, Sam, to this public inquiry. How do you see this unfolding in 2020? Um, we, there, there's some indications that we'll start to hear uh, evidence or, or at least, uh, you know, some indication of what the the, the lawyers involved in the in the commission, what how they want to lay uh, the the schedule out in spring. Maybe we'll start to hear you know really gripping testimony later in the year. But what is clear is that uh, at this point, really, it's an investigation. I mean, I understand that the lawyers involved, they're trying to get their heads around a, a massive, massive issue. They are they're doing their own research. Uh, I don't know who they're talking to, but I know they're talking to people and trying. To to lay out the strategy. So again, uh, we know that whistleblowers. You've mentioned Ross Alderson. Uh, yeah. He um, he he uh, went away. He well, well, we'll just say he stepped away from his job with the Lottery Corporation. Yes. He wants to speak. Uh, Fred Pinnock wants to speak. The RCMP illegal gaming unit commander, whose unit got shut down when he asked to do more in BC Lottery Casinos. Many others, um, I don't think we'll hear from them until late in 2020, but we should be hearing some sort of evidence in the spring. Yeah, Ross Alderson is a, a guy I got to know a little bit too this year, Sam, and, and this guy is an amazing guy. He's the former director of money laundering at the BC Lottery Corporation. He wrote some of those early reports on some of the stuff that he thought was suspicious going on in BC Casinos, and yeah, I think this is a guy who really wants to say his piece. He knows a lot of stuff. He saw a lot of stuff. And he says he's really ready to name names and really rock this uh, rock this public inquiry. So 
that's going to be fascinating to see how that unfolds in the new year. How about your own investigative work, Sam? You've, you've uncovered so much of the key stories on this file. Got anything else coming in the new year? Uh, Mike, I'm absolutely still digging into this. I'm still, uh, I've been making freedom of information uh, requests for years now, uh, sort of mind mapping how this happened. I've talked about Macau, Hong Kong, mainland China, Las Vegas may be in the mix. What's going on in the underground is there's some very big people involved. My contention, my, my assertion here is this didn't happen by accident. So I'm working on showing, uh, you know, this is not just loan sharks on the street. It goes way higher than that. There's more than just the big circle boys involved. We're talking about dangerous. I believe some of the richest people in the world could be involved in some ways in what has happened in B.C. And I'm talking about uh, organized crime that is not from Canada. How big is the problem? I mean, we heard lots of numbers thrown around this year in 2019 about the scale of the problem in, in terms of billions of dollars and the scale of the money laundering in, in British Columbia. What is what is your kind of estimate or understanding how big it is? Well, my understanding, that that's an important point. I, I, I should say that one of the stories that was important this year was, uh, as you know, Peter German came out and said uh, about $100 million may have been laundered through casinos. I knew right away that was very wrong. Many of the whistleblowers knew it was wrong. So I did a story that showed uh, it was probably well over a billion, and that's because uh, bank drafts were used to launder money when people started to, you know, crack down on cash. So that that means that not just casinos are involved, Canadian banks are involved. Yeah. And uh, what do you know? Uh, FinTrack Canada's money laundering regulator or agency just came out with an alert about a month ago or just a couple of weeks saying, yes, bank drafts and banks are a big part of this. So I'm talking about uh, billions through BC casinos if we go back to the 90s in real estate over 10, you know, it's hard to say. Tens, 20s, I can't exactly say, tens but what we do tens know is Tens, 20s of billions of dollars? Billions with a B? That's right. I, uh. I believe so. And the reason I'm saying that, uh, Mike, is that a lot of this money is laundered overseas, and by the time it arrives in Canada with developers, it already looks like clean money. So we, we're not just looking at um, buildings coming up in Vancouver. We're looking at uh, corporations that have built buildings around the world and then arrive in Canada. So uh, that'll be to, to, to be determined. But um, you're right. We did hear $5 billion as a figure in, uh, in uh, the money laundering review, and I believe it's a lot higher than that. Sam, you did awesome work on this file in 2019. I look forward to talking to you in the new year as we learn more. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. That is Sam Cooper, investigative reporter with Global News.